0: Welcome. We are going to do three classes now on um, this one chapter of, Yo- of Swami Kriyananda's book, Paramhansa Yogananda, Biography, with personal reflections and reminiscences. And we're going to do a chapter called True Christianity and True Hinduism, which is chapter 29 of this book. And it's just a few pages long. It's very interesting, this whole biography um, that Swamiji wrote just really summarizes and uh, tells a lot of stories about Yogananda's life and gives us the complete essence of, you know, what his life and mission was about. And it's for that reason that Swamiji includes this chapter about Christianity because of the enormous importance um, of Christianity and of the way Yogananda uh, resurrected Yo- uh, Christ's teachings and gave them new expression um, we tend to think of this as being an important part of his mission to the West, because of course he came to live in the West, and Swami so we makes some interesting statements, which I'll talk about here. But really, Yogananda's teaching was world is a world mission, and now as we Ananda begins to take that teaching back to India, as I shared with some of you in this class earlier. Um, we, we had a discussion with Swamiji about whether or not this new interpretation of Christianity is also something that's really important for the East to understand. And Swami's comment was, yes, of course, if we're going to have an East-West union, it's not just a matter of the West understanding the guru-disciple relationship and um, the nature of self-realization, but it's also India coming to a more elevated understanding of Jesus than was presented to them by the missionaries. You know, it's a it's a dual, it's a shift in all directions that we all come to a, a greater understanding of these things. Um, what Swamiji has done in this book is he's given us fifteen points of of Jesus's teachings, which he considers to be the essential teachings, which I also thought just in of itself was interesting. Um, so we have three classes, and essentially we'll we'll take them five, five, and five, and just have a discussion about what each one of them means, because it's a kind of a short course. In self-realization. Also, because so much of the Bible is old, um, has been copied and recopied, translated and retranslated, a lot of it is stories um, and events of Jesus' life. It's not always that easy to understand, or it's not that easy to discern in all of that sort of what the essential teachings actually are. And we're not helped much by the way that the churches themselves have developed Christianity. A friend of mine was just talking to me recently about, apparently there's um, the, the women religious, the nuns in the Catholic Church, there's some kind of like a nuns union of some sort, and they have been um, uh, diverging from what the Pope would like them to do. And apparently there are some kind of a, a papal, the Pope's representative... Who's come to sort of see if they can get the women back in line? And uh, there was a my friend was telling me there was a radio interview between the head of the the women's group, the nuns group, and the, the Pope's representative. And they were asked the interviewer asked the Pope's representative why women are not in the priesthood. He said, "Well, because Jesus said not to," in essence. And it was sort of like, where exactly did Jesus <laughs> say that? You know, I mean, interpretations can be made, and you know, those words are there, but it's, um, it's so commonly believed in the West that spirituality can be passed down through institutional authority that we don't even necessarily stop and think about it. It's so not believed in India that institution, that spiritual authority can be passed down through institutions Swami Kriyananda himself—he came to Yogananda when Swami was 22, in Master's the last three and a half years of Yogananda's life, of Master's life—and Swami, just as a young man, I mean, by the time Swami was 26, Master was gone, and then the next 10 years or so that he spent in uh, SRF was under the leadership first of Rajasi briefly, and then of Dayamata. So his understanding was first directly from Master, and then it was all interpreted for him by the subsequent leaders. And when Swami... Swami had his own suspicions that not everything that was being presented as Master's way was entirely Master's way, but he was a little bit young, and he was in a minority position in his point of view, so he didn't quite know how to put forward. But then when he went to India in 1958... um, he saw in India an expression of spirituality that seemed much closer to him to what he'd understood from Master, which was that inspiration is carried by inspired individuals. And it's the, it's the living presence of elevated consciousness that is spiritual authority, not the tradition established by an organization and passed down through that system. And the essential difference between SRF and Ananda, at this point, Master's organization, the one he founded, and the one that Swami Kriyananda founded, which is us, is just on that point. SRF's theology says that the president of Self-Realization Fellowship, by definition, is Master's spiritual representative on earth. And when Daya, when Daya Mata died and Rinalini took over, as president, she became his representatives. In other words, it's an identity in their own mind just the way the Catholics think that the Pope is Jesus' representative on earth. But fundamental Sanatana Dharma, basic self-realization, says that no external position can automatically confer upon a person spiritual understanding. It may may come together. It may be, and then you think ideally, well, God would so arrange it or the cardinals would so vote or um, the board of directors would decide that whoever is put in charge is also the most spiritually advanced person, but hmm, maybe yes, maybe no. Very often spiritually advanced people don't even want to be part of those things. But the main point is, and, and whereas the West has always felt the need to declare and codify and control and decide, the ideal Eastern point of view has always been, well, oh, let it run. If it's inspired, it'll last, and if it's not, it'll just die away. And we just don't have to Police everything. So as a result, you know, Christianity's just gotten really, really, really mixed up, and Jesus's original teachings have been garbled. You may all remember when we, used, before we had this building, we used to do big annual events for Master. We'd have to rent other churches, and we rented a very nice church in Palo Alto one year, and we really liked it. And we came back the second year to rent it again. In the meantime, it was a ordinary Christian denomination, I don't remember which one, somehow the congregation, members of the congregation, had gotten wind of something that we'd done that they thought was really strange. He actually asked me if we brought a cow in. (laughs) A cow. I guess somehow they got the idea that we were Hindu and that therefore they assumed we must have brought a cow in to worship. You know how insane it can get. So anyway, so the minister had to talk to me before he'd rent to me again and he really wanted to know more who we were because he, he felt a little... Concerned, and I mean, I understood it. He didn't. He wanted to know who was using his church, and I told him that uh, Yogananda taught from both the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita, and the man, the minister, pulled himself up and said, "Well, I don't think you, he didn't presume to call himself a Christian, did he?" I thought, "My word, you arrogant little twit! <laughs> you know what gives you the right to say who can call themselves a Christian?" And I said, "Yes, sir, he definitely did, but he did not teach." From any denomination. He taught directly from the teachings of Jesus. And of course, we never used his church again. (laughs) We never used his church again. He never allowed us to use his church. Several members of his congregation apologized to me later. (laughs) He was not popular even among his own people. But that's the thought form. And you know, Yogananda, when you think about it, he came to America in 1920. And it was not, you know, the East-West transference was not common. He sailed across on one of the first ships that sailed from India, or maybe the first after the Second World War. I mean, you didn't see Indian people on the street at all. And he had long hair. First, he dressed in his robes. I mean, it was very exotic. And we were much more of a solid Christian country at that time than we are now. It was a more, more traditional period in our American history. So he really had a lot to deal with. And he had to come in and tell people. I mean, he prayed right from the start that Jesus Christ was part of the lineage and he would teach people what the the teachings of Jesus really were. And it, it, took, it took a certain amount of intuition and creativity on the part of the people who were listening to him um, to really believe that. But of course, many of them did. And also, at least he became enormously popular as a lecturer. As Swami writes, he attracted thousands of people to his lectures. Um, he attracted a handful to be serious for his classes because that's just the way it, it was. But he was he was really plowing the ground, the way ideas kind of um, like a tide coming in. It was it was the early t- point where this country was going to be willing to accept a whole different understanding, has which has been manifested, of course, in the last hundred years since that time. Um, but he was he was really pushing against very strong traditions and trying to get people to think in totally new ways and now the idea that you know all religions may have may have a fundamental basis it, we're we're more into Dwapara yuga we can think like that more easily but that was not the soil that he found especially not among Christians who above well, not fanaticism is everywhere. But the, the Christian theology itself interprets the words of Jesus to have him, him, he himself declaring that he is the only way, the only truth, the only light, and that you have to follow him. And otherwise, they have gone on to say, even though Jesus himself did not say it, that you, you know, you're hopeless if you don't accept him. But it's just a matter of interpretation, and as Swamiji, in his book, *The Revelations of Christ*, which is a very interesting book, Swamiji spends a lot of that book explaining just the simple question: Who has the right to say what a master said? And the obvious answer, if you accept even the very idea that there's more than one master in the world, the only one who are, who who really has the authority to speak as someone who lives at the on, at that same level, and that's not a uh, that 's not, not the result of intellectual training or organizational position; it can only be the result of direct revelation so Jesus spoke with that authority I mean master spoke with that authority the authority of one who communes directly with Christ because he has the same state of consciousness it 's very interesting how ideas take hold. I'm old enough now to have watched society shift itself. It's a very peculiar factor the way society shifts and part of it is just the way the yuga shifts where Dwapara yuga sending, and ideas just become common. The most notable one in my life experience so far, well meditation is certainly one, but just vegetarianism and health food because it's so mundane. You know, in the early 60s when we we, my little group of friends and I, began to think seriously about what we were putting in our bodies and whether it was really good for us or not. I mean, certainly we weren't the first people in the world to ever think like that, but it was so radical when we were doing it. And there's never been any governmental edicts or church edicts about organic food and whole foods and so on, but it's just gradually permeated the mass consciousness. So even if it's still, we still haven't shifted the whole... Industry, I remember I was in seclusion once at the, at the seclusion retreat at Ananda village and um, I was taking they were bringing me my meals from the kitchen so i didn 't have to think about food and One day the kitchen was closed, so they brought me just some supplies and they brought me a box of cereal and it was like a, a, a normal brand like General Mills or Kellogg's or something like that but it was a whole grain cereal, and they really wanted you to know it was whole grain. So they had a huge picture of one of the flakes on the front with a little thing that says larger than actual life. You know, like this. I was alone, and sometimes if things strike you really funny when you're in seclusion. I found that picture of that whole grain flake on that cover just one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. Just the pride with which they touted it and made it extra big so you could see the texture of the grain and all of that. And I thought, well, you know, the revolution is really happening because this is the very company... A friend of mine used to work for for General Mills. And he said that you got more nutrition from the box than from the cereal. (laughs) He had it all figured out. (laughs) Just eat the box and throw away the cereal. (laughs) So there it was, you know, with their whole grain right in front of it. And, of course, meditation now is very, very uh, widely appreciated. Not necessarily widely practiced, but widely appreciated. My joke is that if people don't meditate now, they at least feel guilty for not meditating. Which is progress, because that shows that they know it's worthwhile. So it's, it's going to happen, probably sort of like ice melting, which is to say you don't exactly know when the shift takes place, but there's a, a ice and then it gradually just kind of goes away. Where you already see, in the way that people approach their spiritual life, there is what people call now a lamentable, well, some people call it lamentable, lack of denominational loyalty that when people come to town they don't necessarily look for a methodist church or a congregational church but they look for a church that inspires them and a lot of the churches don't have denominational affiliations strongly they have just the new fellowship the new this the new life especially the christian ones but people go where they feel inspired that's a whole you, 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 that's a huge revolution revol, revolution right there that people are asking what inspires them instead of what are they supposed to do, what have my father's done, what am I identified with? It's a, a very different way of looking at it. So things like what Swamiji has written here about you know, the essence of, of Jesus' teachings and how it exactly corresponds to the essence of self-realization teachings, how it is the same teaching, just over time, I believe that thought form is just going to grow and grow until sincere devotees everywhere will we just begin to accept it as the norm. There's still this battle between the fixed tradition and the expansion of, of Dwapara Yuga. We'll, I mean, when I say these things will happen, I, I refer to you know, eating, being a vegetarian and starting to eat whole grains in the late 60s. You know, so we're talking like, is that what, 50 years almost now? That's a long time in one sense. It's a generation. So we may not live to see it, but I think we can confidently assume it's going to happen. Um, there's a a kind of global exhaustion with sectarianism. Simultaneously, the sectarianists are really literally battling to the death. But there's also this global exhaustion with it. It's just this folly. Because because the myths can't hold anymore. Because we travel so much, we communicate so easily, the televisions and the movies just present every reality there is. There was that... uh, a movie I went to see, the one called Babies, which was just like three or four babies. It was just a movie perfectly wordless of babies of different cultures. And they they went out to some African tribe in the middle of the desert somewhere and they filmed their little babies and then they went up somewhere in Mongolia where out on the plains and they filmed their little babies. Then they filmed a little I think New York baby and they just were just showing babies. And and you had but what was interesting is the, the cultures were quite exotic from our point of view. New York could look quite exotic to some people too. But um, but you were just looking at it, you were just seeing it, and you were seeing the essential sameness. Of course, babies are really all the same. In fact, it was this, the, the, the thing started with this this little baby boy and this little baby girl. I believe were fighting with each other over a water bottle, and. Uh, I think the boy just picked up the water, empty water bottle and just pounded the little girl. And then the little girl, in a, just a perfectly adult female gesture, just flung her arm against her head and threw herself down. <laughs> it, was, it was such an adult female gesture. It was, you know His response was to bash her, and her response was just drama queen to fall into the rock. That was when I thought, doesn't make any difference you know, whether you got eight necklaces and your neck is stretched and all this stuff the universe is the same everywhere but but being able to see all that it used to be that that you know your government could tell you that the people on the other side of the water were evil and really fundamentally different from you and all those myths can't hold anymore because we can all talk to each other and in very short order we find out there's just not a lot of difference and that will happen with everything and Master was you know master's point of view on these things his world mission and his conscious knowledge of what he was doing was just so forward looking you know he he uh, an avatar comes to set you know, set things in motion that that's that is uh, millennial in its effect i mean look at the life of jesus you know when jesus died any common sense appraisal of that situation would have said just the waters of time would have just closed over him and he would have disappeared. That's just what you would have expected. He he was just this little small time guy who was put to death by the powers that be and instead the the vibrational divine uh, power that was planted there apparently completely transformed a society. It's... Um, This world is not what it seems. You know, it's really a very different reality. So I think it behooves us on a deep level, both for the communion that comes to us, for the sake of helping others, and for our own uh, personal spiritual growth, to really appreciate um, the, the roundedness of what Master has brought us and the degree to which the teachings of Jesus just fold right into it. I I don't know if you have any questions, but if anybody does, we can... Is there anything to say? Okay.
1: Um, Thanks for sharing all of this. Mm I find it really interesting. And I find myself um, going through different... Let me try to click my thoughts here for a second. Different um, feelings around various, you know, um, religious denominations. And there's a lot of beauty in it. And then there's the other side, right? As with everything. So I wonder people often, you know, I have my keychain of Yogananda, I have my books, I mean, my necklace, and so, um, sometimes people will ask, or if they don't, they share about, you know, their own feelings against whatever it is that I believe in. Mm And so, I remember, um, hearing that, you know, it's, Yogananda said, be careful about who you share your, yourself with, because they can use it against you. So, um... I wonder what's the appropriate way to handle that kind of situation because sometimes I've stayed quiet or I've left or I've rarely argued with them, but I have said, you know, this is my belief. I respect yours if you could just respect mine. But how, I mean, it, 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 for example, when that priest was talking to you, if he were to say something more um, more specifically degrading,
0: how would you respond? I would not have bothered. Um, specifically, actually, the first principle here is, um, includes the fact that there's no point, you absolutely cannot convince someone of a spiritual truth that they're not ready to hear, and it's um, not helpful to them to try to persuade them. It, it, in his working with all of us, Swami Kriyananda has always emphasized that in self-transformation, timing is everything. And in helping other people to transform, now he was not so much thinking about accepting self-realization generally, but... People simply cannot comprehend something that they're not vibrationally ready to comprehend. I've been very impressed in my own life how blatant, how blind I have been to blatant faults in my character that everybody knew and even told me about, but I never really understood it till the day I was ready to understand it. And then I would just look back and I would think, how could I have been so confused? But I was, because understanding is vibrational. It's a, it's a, it's a thread of uh, universal consciousness. And if you're not in tune with it, it just goes right past you and there's no place it can go into you. So when that man says to me, that uh, minister says, he doesn't presume to call himself a Christian, does he? Where's, where's the beginning of that conversation? I mean, where do I even start? He hasn't asked me anything. He's not interested in my point of view. I can't help him because nothing I have to say will interest him. And I don't have any need to persuade him because I don't need him to endorse my beliefs for me to feel comfortable in who I am. And I just need to extricate myself from his company as soon as possible. If he's going to be insulting, I'm not going to put up with that and I'm either going to answer or I will leave depending on what's appropriate. Swami Kriyananda tells an interesting story of him being He was at a program that Self-Realization Fellowship sponsored for the Shankaracharya of somewhere, who came from India, and SRF sponsored a program for him. I think it was held at UCLA or something like that. Well, Swami was sitting with a whole group of the monastics in the audience, but they weren't identifiably so, and they were sitting behind some other people. And those people started talking about why is a fine man like this sponsored by that two-bit organization, Self-Realization Fellowship? And they sat there and said a great many negative things and not one SRF person spoke up. And afterwards, Swami said he stood out in the lobby and he waited for the people to come out. And he told them that they were completely misinformed and before they sh- talked like that, they ought to find out what the true facts were. And the um, people apologized to Swami. So he, you know, it's not like you should always just turn the other cheek. But if it's a question of them not comprehending, it's just a waste of your time.
1: I remember you shared a story one time about going to Italy and there was a choir singing, the Venice mm-hmm. Choir or something, and you heard someone say something really disrespectful. So I mean in that sense, like if I hear someone say something which is out of ignorance, they don't know better, but in my heart I'm just like, oh, that just feels so... Um, I don't know, it hurts, I guess, not for them or for me, but it just feels like that is just so... Well,
0: in that particular instance, it was the Vienna Boys Choir, and we were all there to hear the choir, but it happened to be Mass. That was how you got a free ticket to go hear the choir, as you went to Mass. Poor priest. It's just terrible. And uh, this couple was uh, using a piece of candy to imitate communion. mean, I still remember it. And I still remember that I didn't speak up, and I should have. I didn't speak up. I should have. I should have simply said to them that that is extremely disrespectful in this environment and I, it offends me and I wish you would not do that. And I didn't say that and I think it was cowardice on my part and I should have. I allowed a blasphemous thing to happen in front of me and I didn't stand up for it. Okay, I guess that's a great question. so I. Rem- but if they had just said, you know, I don't believe in the Catholic Church or I just, you know, you have to sense it. What you're really asking, Stacey, is how do you know what's divinely appropriate in the moment? And the only way you can know is from intuition. And you can know from making mistakes. I made a mistake with that couple. I should have spoken up. And I didn't, and I remember it, because it was wrong. I, it's not reoccurred, so I haven't had a chance, but I remember that it was wrong. But I've had, been in many places where people's beliefs were so far from mine, there was no point in even starting a conversation. Just I just go quietly on my own, about my own business. You see, that's also in direct contrast to a commonly held Christian idea, denominational idea, that we have to go out and convert everybody, that that their salvation depends on our active conversion of them, which is a huge cultural part of Christianity. Um, I read a fascinating book by Pearl S. Buck, who grew up in China, and her father was, she even said, one of the last of the great, you know, self-righteous missionaries, who, who was a really remarkable man, and just profoundly believed that that it was his holy obligation to bring the word of Jesus to these heathen and that their salvation depended on it. And she commented that, you know, it's like a gender... It's a, a cultural icon that just hardly exists anymore, that her father and his group were the, practically the last ones of a certain type. And uh, But it was amazing to really just hear how strongly held that view was. And it gave them... gave us her father... Tremendous courage, and determination, and power, because they held it so strongly, you know that that he just gave his whole life to that ideal, really to a remarkable degree. Um, but that's not truly what Jesus taught, in in the same way that it's interpreted. But Master was very big on spreading the word about self-realization. He said we should always be talking about it. We should always be passing out copies of Autobiography of a Yogi. We should always be looking for receptive souls. It's just a service to them, but receptive souls is different than souls that we can badger into believing. Yeah, does that make sense? But I think when people insult something that's dear to you, there's no reason for you to take it. But I let my 89-year-old uncle make fun of my teachings because I knew he didn't know what he was doing. There was no way to correct him. So I just let it happen. But when my uh, father, at one point, tried to speak against it, I just suggested to him that he not do that. That it was going to have no effect on me and it would have a disastrous effect on our relationship. When my mother wrote once in that way, they just would get a bee in their bonnet every once in a while over the 40 years, you know. I just wrote to her, don't write me letters like this because if you do, I'll never write you again. Just as simple as that. Just don't do this. I'm not going to take this. And so they didn't because they knew I absolutely meant it. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't attack them and I didn't try to persuade them. Just don't do this. Yeah. And And I meant it. I would not have, I would not have put up with it. I saw no reason to. When people feel your conviction like that, they, they listen to you. You're not just running a story. You're just stating a fact. And that's the way it will be. Yeah. One thing that really touched me... Any other comments or questions? Yeah. One thing that really touched me and what Swami included in this book was the paragraph, Toward the end of his life, Master prayed to Jesus... Lord, I have been giving them your teachings. I have not wanted to introduce anything foreign to them. Isn't that interesting? He said, um, and how he put it, let's see, that that Master came to teach within a tradition into which he was commissioned to inject new life. I I mean, a characteristic feature of Yogananda's mission is that he did not really try to make us Indian at all. And one of the reasons Swamiji has discouraged us from doing a lot of Indian chanting, for example, which many of us thoroughly enjoy, is he points out that Master did not do it. That Master was completely versed in all of the Indian ways of worship and music and everything, but he did not bring it. And he could have. You know, he made made no effort to bring the cultural India to America. He did uh, bring back saris for the women in his ashram and he liked them to wear saris and in Durga Mata's book he even talks, she even talks about how Master bought some of the women renunciates their um, gold jewelry in the sort of tradition, the Indian tradition of you know, of giving women gold and letting them have wealth by having gold but uh, he still, very little of it and he, he only gave a few Indian names and he just did a few Indian things, you see him Occasional chants and occasional prayers. But mostly he just embraced where he was and, and just he followed Sri Teshwar's advice. Forget that you were born an Indian and don't become an American. You know, take the best of both sides and let that be what you're doing. And then Swamiji says here, a tradition into which he was commissioned to inject new life. And when you even think about the fact that Jesus Uh, that Jesus Christ had actually materialized before Babaji in the Himalayas and has said to him, what has happened to my church? They're still doing good works, but they've forgotten the importance of direct intercommunion with God. Let us send an emissary to the West to promulgate my original message once again. And we hear that. We hear that every week in the Festival of Light. But even until I was reading it here, to just realize how completely this message, this teaching is Christianity. And how completely Jesus is engaged and not just incidental. That Jesus, Babaji, Jesus and Babaji together have planned the spiritual salvation of the age. It's, it's very interesting. But now then we have to cut through all of the um, churchianity. But you see, on the Indian side, we again don't appreciate this because we don't live in India, although some of us have for a while. But when you go to India, what Master is teaching has nothing to do with Hinduism either. and has almost nothing to do with Indian culture. And Swamiji says one of the things that was so depressing to him when he went to India in 1958 and saw how the disciples of Master living at that time and supposedly representing him had simply absorbed Master into the Indian culture. And we're still just sort of behaving in their same cultural ways, with their same pujas and their same chanting and their same expounding of the Bhagavad Gita, and then just sort of brought Master in from the side. But we have the picture of what Master wanted to present. And he himself only went back to India one time, um, you know, since he came to America, but there's no reason to think that the cultural Hinduism is any more what Master wanted than the cultural Christianity. It's a new expression. In this movie about Ananda that we've been working on, when Jaya was speaking about India, the common statement is, well, isn't this Indian teaching? Isn't this coals to Newcastle to take Master's teachings back to India? And Jaya's answer was, truthfully, not really, he said. Because it's as new for India, really almost as new as it is for America, when you really get get into it. Among other things, it brings in Jesus, solidly. But also, it's not about ritual. And it's not about culture, and it's not about society. It's not about habits. It's about direct inner communion, which by its very nature requires that you separate yourself from all of those different realities. Nonetheless, Master wrote the poem, My India, and died repeating it. So there is something there to it. But it's, an, it's a new expression. It has to come from a new place. So. Then, so, let's start with some of the points that Master represented, unless there's any questions or comments. No? Nope. The first point is actually related to what Stacy said. He said that our first duty, this is about Jesus, is the, what the teachings of Jesus Christ, on which Yogananda focused primarily. Number one, he said that our first duty in life is to love God and that in our awakening divine love, we should love all beings in his name. Our neighbors, he said, again quoting Christ, are those who are in tune with us wherever they may live. To them we should give more, for they have shown themselves capable of receiving more. In other words, don't waste energy in giving too much to people who are not receptive. And then he quote, quote, throw not your pearls before swine, which is from the Bible. Concentrate especially on people who are open to what you have to give. So uh, Master is starting with what Jesus himself said was when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the second commandment is as important as the first. Um, This again, it's it's very specific and it's very important for us to understand because what Master is saying is that it's not enough for us to just go off into a cave or go off into our own meditation and just think about our own salvation. That in this particular age of Dwapara, and this was also something that characterized Jesus' teaching, is this concern for others and this way of showing our devotion to God was by seeing God in the world around us. This made Jesus' teachings very, very modern. But because it was Dwapara Yuga descending, you know, because the nadir of of Kali Yuga descending, I mean, was not until 500 A.D., the followers of Jesus couldn't build anything because... The, the planet itself was going into such a darkening period, and the barbarians were going to destroy everything. And that's how the Irish saved civilization. Is when the, uh, uh, we want to acknowledge the McSweeneys whenever we can. <laughs> <laughs> when the barbarians came and wiped out everything, it was in the Christian monasteries that the remnant of civilization, really literally, and culture and understanding and education and art and Christianity itself was held until that nadir had passed and then life could come up, culture could come up on the other side. But as a consequence, you can see that Jesus' teachings had to be interpreted in those first um, centuries in a certain way. And that's where you had the tradition of the Desert Fathers, who those who were serious about um, following the way of Jesus just went way far away from civilization because there was just nothing you could do you couldn't really build because it, it was all going down into a destructive period. But now because we're Dwapara Yuga rising, he hasn't exactly said this, but because the age is becoming more expansively understanding, there's, there's a reason why we, how, why and how we can build. One of the reasons Master started an organization, Swami started one, why we're establishing churches, why we're, we're reaching out to people in a very dynamic way is because there's an elevating vibration on the planet and so there's more receptivity. But the fundamental teaching is that your first duty is to love God and then you love God in others. But what the traditional Christianity has lost track of is that serving your neighbor is, is described as your religion. And so much of the Christian teaching, as Jesus says, as we say in the festival, they still do good works. They worry about the homeless. They feed people. They take care of orphans. But they no longer remember that it's really God that we're loving first and that we're communing with God and out of that communion comes our service. It's not social service. It's not anxiety about the future of the planet. It's not thinking that human beings are in charge and we have to take care of it. This is Mother Teresa um, to a T except most people don't understand it. Mother Teresa never believed that she was serving the poor. She never defined her life that way. She defined her life as doing what Jesus asked her to do, which is a world of difference because implied in that is that if he had asked her to go off and live in a cave, if he had asked her to move to Beverly Hills and work with the richest people in the world, she would have done whatever he asked her to do. Now, as it happened, he asked her to serve the poorest of the poor, but if you do that, out of your connection to God, it's quite different than if you do it out of your anxiety about the future of the planet. And in fact, when we talk about the caste, the, the caste system as um, indications of expanding consciousness, at the level of the Vaisha, which is, there's the Shudra, which is the, the uncreative um, laborer, and then the Vaisha, which is considered to be the merchant class where you do things for what's in it for you. It's an exchange of energy. But the belief in the, in the second caste, the Vaisha caste, is that my happiness depends on my being able to control the world around me. And we use our creative energy and we try to get money for ourselves, we try to get secure, we try to get our family to look right, we, we, we are concerned. Our happiness comes from what goes, is dependent upon what's outside of us. When we advance to the Kshatriya level, we realize our happiness depends on being able to control our own consciousness. We begin to do battle inwardly. But the Vaisha is trying to control the world. So what's interesting, you see, is that most social service, most of what we consider to be, you know, good, noble behavior, actually comes out of the Vaisha level and is often coming out of either guilt or fear or anxiety about the conditions of the world and this anxiousness to make the world different so that I won't be hurt after this. But the kshatriya begins to understand, and that's why often when you you start out being very politically conscious and socially active, and then the more you get into self-realization and meditation, often the less inclined you are to work on that level because you realize it's just a, a never-ending cycle. And, and your anxiety about the condition of the world greatly diminishes, even though your awareness of what a mess it is might actually increase, because you realize that the only way that problems will ever be solved is internally through consciousness. I remember the first time I went to India and I'd heard about overpopulation. You hear about overpopulation, but you don't really know overpopulation until you go into a developing country that's overpopulated. And I remember when we were on the Howrah Bridge in Calcutta at rush hour, and, you know, it was shoulder to shoulder with every possible form of conveyance just crammed on that bridge. And it just took us, you know, a couple of hours or at least an hour and a half just to move across this very short span. When Hare Krishna Ghosh came here to visit us to America for the first time, and we drove up to the Golden Gate Bridge and we got off on the other side and stood and looked and watched it and it was more or less rush hour and we were watching the cars and Hare Krishna turned to us. He lived all his life in Calcutta. Where are the people? He said. Where are the people? They're all inside the cars. All of them? I mean, it was just like he just couldn't comprehend because it didn't look like rush hour because where are the people? But just looking at that whole situation, my first impulse was Only a change of consciousness, nothing else. You could just work endlessly on the physical plane and you won't make a dent in this. It'll just slip between your fingers like mercury. Change of consciousness is the only way that this will shift. And that's why uh, Master goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself, but your neighbors are the ones who are most in tune with you. And to them you should give more because they're able to receive more they're able to receive more of what you have to give, which is really your love of God. So he's he's trying to explain to us that Jesus' primary teaching is not to help the poor and downtrodden. I mean, Ananda gets criticized sometimes because we don't help the poor and downtrodden enough, and I don't really have a good answer to that because I think it wouldn't hurt us to do a little more of that. But nonetheless, it's not a primary teaching of ours. Our primary teaching is teach people to meditate teach people to love god teach people to understand what's really where our happiness really comes from and everything else will solve itself because all the rest of it is because it's all being picked up from the wrong string in this film that we're making about ananda peter garing who's who was the real nuts and bolts guy about solar power and um, rammed earth housing and just all the self sustaining things that people mostly think about but he said you know we definitely need a new way to live on this planet he said but the problem is that people have an insatiable desire for possessions and for experiences and he said we can live very simply here because we understand that happiness comes from inside and when happiness comes from inside you, you simply don't consume the planet with the same um, greedy abandon because you simply don't need to and he quoted Swami's statement that if everyone in the world lived the way Ananda does, the whole, quote, ecological crisis just wouldn't be there. And it's not because we're so absolutely good at recycling, you know, (laughs) even though they put a lot of energy into it. It's because we're not insatiable in our desires because we know where it comes from. So he's saying here, if you love God first and commune with God first, You'll, you'll understand that that's what you really have to give people. And that's why, Stacey, had a direct answer to your question, if, if people don't want that, you have to really pick your battles. You have to pick your battles for a lot of reasons. One is you waste a lot of energy. And two, if you're not really strong in yourself, you can get yourself just sucked down into arguments and conversations that you don't want to get into. You know, e- Even I, who I'm quite, I'm quite adept, I just avoid it. But if you're even just slightly new, people can have better arguments against what you're doing than you have in favor of them. And I, I remember I'll, I, I remember this woman wrote me about, uh, you know, her family or her husband being really upset. And she was just starting to come to Ananda. And they were accusing us and it of all sorts of things. And I said, you know, you're in no position to defend it. You hardly know what's going on. <laughs> You just have to say, well, that's a good point. I'll keep it in mind. <laughs> or, well, I'm just, right now, you're right, I don't have a good answer for that, but I'm just going by how it feels, and I have an open mind. You know, don't, don't try to be more certain than you actually are. Just let, let people say what they want, or walk out of the room, if it's better. Um, Nirmal had a question first. Pick up that.
1: Uh, not so much a question, but a comment. The uh, American humorist Mark Twain paraphrased Jesus well. Um, I don't know if he intentionally did a paraphrase, but he said, uh, don't teach a pig to sing. It wastes
0: your time and it uh, annoys the pig. <laughs> <laughs> Pearls before swine. <laughs> yeah. yeah the same quote, only I yeah, put it in a way that makes
1: you laugh. I was just gonna say, um, so it it you know, when I'm here I just I love it. The energy here is just like it's so understanding and we're on the same kind of wavelength consciousness. And I found myself in a profession that's just like, I'm just, I don't even know what to say, you know, it's like, there's really nothing to say, you know, uh-huh. so I don't, I'm just going to keep praying and seeing where that takes me. But yeah, it's like, we're just so, you know, because I'm doing counseling, I'm actually in school to get another degree to be, you know, anyway, uh-huh. but it's just like, sometimes I wonder what am I doing with this? <laughs> it's, to me, it's never been really beneficial to dig deep into my problems and, and and approach it from a certain way it can be helpful if done properly and everyone's different but the spiritual way has always been most helpful for me and um and that's also really broad but i just find myself at work it's like people are just complaining or just, you know it's just they don't even want to hear the word god it's just like i don't even know where to start so often i don't say anything you know so it's like what should i say you know but um but yeah well I, you should
0: uh, seriously speaking um you should pray to be guided in what to say. Um, when I was having to be with my parents a great deal, who c- can't talk to me about anything that I'm involved in because they weren't interested. They're not on the planet now, so we really can't talk. But they, they never wanted to really know what I had to say at all particularly. And they never really listened to much of what I had to say Um and in fact, it was kind of humorous um, how intently they didn't listen, um, almost enthusiastically how they didn't listen. And I, uh, I, at one point, just began to laugh. And I said, I finally said to my mother, I said, actually, this is quite relaxing for me. I said, I live in the world where a lot of people listen to a lot of what I say, so it's, it's quite refreshing to just be somewhere where I'm utterly discounted, you know, it's just like, sure, why not? Um, But I began to feel intensely bored. And I have very little endurance. Um, I'm very creative because I have so little endurance. As soon as I get bored, I just can't stand it. So I have to come up with something. So I was having to help them a great deal and I was just dying of boredom. Which uh, I was joking with Michael Gornick who's had a number of health crises. Some of you know. and The latest one where we all had to... Help him back from the edge of the other world. I told him that he was a one-man training course in healing prayers because of all the crises, health crises he has. And I was talking about how David and I said, the only thing that we're ever threatened with is dying of boredom. And I said in it, just you can't just send out a worldwide prayer request. David and us <laughs> are dying of boredom, you know, <laughs> So we have to be very creative to keep ourselves going. But there I was with my parents, and I was in danger of dying of boredom. And I just said to Master, you know, there must be a way to help these people. You brought me down here. you're making me spend a great deal of my time. And it was so interesting to me because a kind of warm-hearted enthusiasm just began to come out of me. And I just began to feel very joyously enthusiastic about whatever we were doing, no matter whatever it was. And I became intensely interested in... and it was an act of will. It was, I just decided, I just, I'm bored because I'm not putting out any energy. And I'm unhappy because I'm not putting out very nice energy. And I just decided to just be really enthusiastic and really nice if I had to be there. And then all of a sudden it got to be rather fun. It was exactly the same situation. It was just how I felt about it. Now, if you're in a position where people really need something from you, um, you've been brought there for a reason and part of that reason is undoubtedly to help train you to be positive and enthusiastic and attentive to other people's realities and how can i help you everybody is the same they all love to be helped and if you they're not going to be helped by you know my parents did not want my point of view on self-realization but there was just a whole lot of other little things i could do to serve them i just you know how can i serve how can i serve how can i serve if you have a choice about where you spend your energy. See, what what he's saying here is give the most to those who can receive the most from you. When you actually have free choice, then give your energy to that which is going to happen on the highest vibration that you're capable of when you have a choice. But if your profession or your family life or your education or whatever it might be require that you be in environments that don't draw out of you the, the highest vibration that you might give, then give the highest that you're able to give. Because, well, Swamiji was talking about, um, I think it was a picture of the New York subway. He had a photograph of people on the New York subway just waiting for their stop. You know, just completely checked out, waiting for their stop. And he said the, the danger of that is that it becomes a habit that if you're in places where you think your energy is not magnetized and you get in the habit of withholding your energy, then you don't know how to bring it out at any time. You're always withholding your energy. When people come to me and ask me, you know, are they doing what they should be doing? My question is, are you living at 110% of your potential? And if you're not, you need to find a way to do so. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. It's a question of whether you're doing it with your whole heart, with your love for God, with everything that you can give it. And if you aren't, you either need to change your circumstances or you need to change your attitude. And very often you have to change your attitude before you're allowed to change your circumstances. I, know, I remember a letter that Swami wrote to someone, this woman wrote, I just can't find anything to be interested in. He wrote back, he said, ah, you're waiting for it to interest you. He said, you have to give your energy to it first and then you will find it interesting. And I knew the person he was writing to, and that was exactly right. They were just waiting. They were waiting for something to come to them. There was a woman I knew, beautiful woman. She, she was really an extraordinarily beautiful woman. And uh, she talked to me about the curse of, ha- of being so beautiful. She, she She freely admitted. She said it had made her terribly lazy because... She could just walk into a room and just sit there and do nothing, and an enormous amount of energy would happen around her, because she was so beautiful. And she got in the habit of just being so passive, because she never had to put out energy. And it was interesting when she sort of came to a certain mature realization of that. She she gave herself a very unflattering haircut, and just she sort of like, kind of ruined her beauty a little bit. I thought it was very most interesting, but she did it deliberately because she recognized it was a liability to her. You know, never having had that problem. <laughs> but I've always thought about that. You get into a passive habit. However you justify it, it's like I'm not giving because I have all these reasons why I'm not. At the same time, he says right here, your neighbors are those to whom you give, give the most to those who will receive the most from you because that's how the divine law works. You'll benefit more that way. Now? Uh, what did you
1: mean by you can give to the level that you can? I can't remember. It was so long uh-huh. ago you said it. But
0: are you living at one hundred and ten percent of your potential? No, it was before
1: that. Uh-huh. You were saying.
0: Oh well, for example, you know, I know a lot about Master's teachings, and I've spent a lot of years with Swamiji. I have a unique understanding. I, I've had a unique experience and opportunity to learn a lot about the Self Realization teachings. So I spend as much of my time as I possibly can either talking to people about it or writing about it because that's really what I have to give. If I go into an environment where they're not much interested in that, I I become just completely invisible because I don't really have a lot else to give. That's my main life. So I'm not going to go out and uh, work in a soup kitchen or, um, you know, collect coats for poor people or something like that even though that's very good work but that's not particularly what I have to give. And so each of us has to figure out you know, what's the what's the best that I can give in, but then I found myself at my parents' house where they didn't really want what I really had so I had to think what's the best I can give in this situation and so there I gave joyful service and interest in them you know, just loving interest in their lives. That was the best that they wanted from me. First, I, I tried to give them, I tried to reorganize their lives, which I'm also capable of doing. But they didn't want that from me. So then I gave them joyous enthusiasm for what they were already doing. And that worked a lot better. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Since you
1: mentioned soup kitchens,
0: uh-huh.
1: I, I was wondering, could... could um, you know, like where people go to eat, so a lot of the Christian places make them pray and all of that, and they read the Bible while they're eating. Right. Well, could could we could we teach them to meditate? I mean,
0: well, the likelihood, Marilyn, is see the difficulty is if you're if you're offering people a teaching that says the things of this world will not satisfy you, which is essentially what what our teaching is and people do not have the things of this world and are incapable of getting them but desperately want them, they're not usually going to hear a teaching that says, oh, the things of the world won't satisfy you because people do not learn from their desires being frustrated. They learn from their desires being fulfilled, which is why this is a teaching mostly for people who are, relatively speaking, educated and comfortable in life. It's not really a teaching for impoverished people trying to get a foothold in society because they are karmically at the point where they need to have some of the success that the world has to offer before they can understand its limitations to them it's still a prize beyond reach and their renunciation of it would be more because it has renounced them rather than they have renounced it Um, it just the teaching doesn't make any sense to them because they haven't um develop the willpower and the energy and the incentive as a rule to have it and they need to accomplish that first so that's among other reasons why we don't try to preach in those atmospheres it's not the right teaching for those people in fact for the most part they really do need to become selfishly ambitious their, their shudras are trying to become vishas and if you're trying to take a shudra and teach them to be a kshatriya they won't be able to they have to first become vaishyas that's the natural progression of it. Which is among other reasons why we don't... Ananda per se doesn't do a lot of that kind of work. Although in India, Swami's been very keen on um, Dr. Aditya in Pune starting a clinic for the villagers, a medical clinic. He's very keen on our having a medical clinic there. And conceivably even doing something for the education of the children in the nearby village, um, so there it's a slightly different circumstance. I don't really know how it's going to unfold. I was interested because every spiritual organization in India is expected to do something for the vast numbers of people who are struggling to survive. And I've been curious to see how Ananda would step into that reality. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Okay, But you know the Christian people, and, and actually... You know, rigid Christianity is often the salvation of people who are struggling to just survive in society. You know, the the rigidity of Christianity is often exactly the right thing. It, you know, can get people out of drinking, it can get them out of violent ways of behaving, it can get them out of laziness, it can get them out of fear, it can get them out of isolation. It's It's a good teaching. It's a very good teaching exactly in that form for people at a certain level of reality. I don't mean by any means to... To, to limit it to that but you can see plus if they believe as they do that they that part of my duty as a Christian one is to serve the poor and two is to save the heathen then you get it all together you give them soup and then you expose them to the word of God and I mean, it's very gratifying, it's a, a nice life I myself feel like been there, done that lots and lots and lots and lots of times I see the, you know the the self-sacrificing people in the impoverished areas and it's just so familiar to me. I think I just spend incarnations doing it and you get the good karma of it and gradually you get a little more. Master said if they only meditated they would make really great progress because they're so selfless in their lives. Yeah. Well, I can give you all a short break or we can just barrel through. What what would you like? Do people want a short break or shall we just... Okay, short break. Of Jesus, the Master wants us to know, our first duty in life is to love God. I love the way also he puts that. It's our first duty in life, which is to say the only responsibility we really have in life is to love God. Nothing else is more important. Our first duty is to love God. All other responsibilities and so on are secondary to that. I love that, because that's the one thing you can always do. And then you can always love God and other people. I mean, you can be in prison. You can have everything taken away from you. You can lose all your possessions. You can lose your health. You can lose everything. And your first duty is to love God. People go to pieces when they lose their external world. But if we realize that our first duty is to love God, we don't have to really worry about anything. I'm not saying we won't, but we don't have to. And then the second is seek God first. And everything else that you require will be given to you. Not, you notice, everything else that you desire will be given to you. In, uh, in his Whispers from Eternity, Master has... Uh, the Whispers from Eternity is how to have the right attitude in every situation. And every circumstance of life, virtually, is included in one or another of his prayers... And whereas a lot of people now affirm wealth and prosperity in certain material ways, I will manifest this car, I will manifest this. Master talks all the time about, you know, I am a child of the infinite, all of my needs will be met. But he always uses the words needs, requirements, give me what I need at the time that I need it. He never, ever, ever talks about our being able to just have whatever we want. Nor does he make it desirable for us to have whatever we want. But this is also seek God first and everything else you require will be given to you is also the Ananda motto that Swami saw in India. Where there is Dharma, there is always victory. Where there is right action, then everything else will naturally follow from that. And often we get so confused in our lives and we don't really know what we're supposed to be doing. It's very popular these days to think that we all have very, very specific destinies that we're supposed to be fulfilling, where the honest truth of it is, almost all of us have so much karma we could work it out in lots of different directions. We just haven't narrowed down to just one or two things. It's really infinitely more about the consciousness with which we do things rather than the things themselves. So even if we find ourselves, as you were describing in a situation where I'm not sure why I'm here then we just keep seeking God first, even in that circumstance. How can I serve? How can I serve? Why have you put me here? What can I do? You know, why have you put me here, Lord? You've brought me into this situation today. Our prayers can become so simple. You know, and we become anxious about lots of things, and life is quite insecure these days. Society is not stable, and it doesn't look like it's going to get any more so. So we're not really sure. So we... We have to put our faith on something really solid. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. But mostly, it's keep our focus on the divine, and everything else that we require will come to us. And a lot of times, that's really about disciplining our inner anxieties. It's not just, you know, meditating and coming to song, uh, satsang, it's when you're just all by yourself and you're. Consciousness is spinning out in all those ways it can spin out, of anxiety for the future, i concerned about the past, just wondering how things will work out. You just keep, in the moment, doing what we're doing. I was asking someone recently who's relatively new to Ananda, as part of this film, again, um, we have a scene that we're now calling the voice of the next generation, and so I was talking to someone who is the voice of the next generation, just curious. This is not a scene in the movie that I can figure out, because I don't really know. In fact, when I go to Ananda Village next week, I'm going to try to have some conversations with that group of people, and just, what you know, what are you thinking? And I was very pleased to hear this individual's attitude about it was pretty much exactly as mine. I'm here to serve God. I'll just do whatever comes next. said, it's very relaxing not to have a plan. <laughs> Which is really exactly right. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek God first. Your first duty is to love God. Do that and everything else will follow from there. But you have to really do that. You can't use that as an excuse to be lazy. And that's where you know the magnetic truth of things really comes out. If you say that you're loving God but what you're actually doing is being lazy and indifferent to the jobs in front of you in the name of, well, I'm really just thinking about God, but you're really not putting out much energy in any direction. That's why, are you doing what you should be doing? Well, are you working at 110% of your potential? Are you busy all the time? Are you just, you know, wasting a lot of time doing nothing? Or is your consciousness really moving out? Are you serving? Are you helpful? Are you always thinking about how you can give? Um, that's also how we seek God, because we love God and we love God and each other. What can I do to help? Swami once described a minister at Ananda is a person who, even in the midst of his own difficulties, can always put the welfare of others first. So he just, even if I'm tired or even if I'm a little poor, I still do what I can for others also. I don't just think only about myself. That's also how we love God. And number three is... Don't settle for lesser fulfillments. Become perfect in yourself even as God himself is perfect. It's a very direct answer to what is too often presented. You know, be therefore perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect is how Jesus put it. And because so many um, theologians don't understand self-realization... And they don't understand that Jesus himself, as uh, Master put it here, God, Yogananda used to say, never creates unique manifestations of himself labeled God. (laughs) All his direct human manifestations are divinely awakened sons who have gone the whole gamut of countless incarnations. They themselves have suffered the sorrows of delusions. They themselves, by steadfast, undaunted effort, have achieved final victory in oneness with God. They are all equally one with the only begotten Son of God, the Christ consciousness, even as Jesus was. So because the basic understanding of Christianity no longer understands who Jesus was, they don't understand him to be a soul who, by his determined, disciplined effort, has triumphed over delusion, they don't have any idea what we're really supposed to be doing here. And, you know, in an effort to make Jesus a special manifestation of God, just, which is what Master's contradicting there, they leave all of us with no assignment except just sort of to depend on him to be saved. And Jews have done exactly the same thing by knocking out the whole concept of, a, of the Messiah. There's nobody in Judaism who's... A, who's there's no saints... You have wise rabbis, but that's the best you can do. But, but they don't understand what he meant by "be therefore perfect." They just, it. They literally can't conceive of what that might mean. So we try to be good, and we we just compromise the whole thing way way down. You know, we live nice lives, we live generous lives, we live upright lives, we live ethical lives. Judaism and Christianity are just the same that way. But where are we going with our consciousness? We're just not going anywhere. When I went with David to the funeral of his sister um, a few weeks ago, nice, very nice Jewish family, very successful, very honorable, and part of a huge social network of other honorable, nice Jewish families, and they were just absolutely bewildered by the death. Just, they were just bewildered. They just didn't know where to go with it. So everybody just sort of stood around and was unhappy and and had a, a, a kind of noble endurance. I mean, there was many admirable qualities, but it was just depressing the life out of me. And then they realized, oh, no, no, there's nothing to be depressed here. This is the kind of experience people have to make them think more deeply because they were perfectly in order as vicious they were just really really good vicious they were very powerful and effective generous creative honorable vicious but they're discovering that they that just controlling the world around you does not bring you the happiness that you'd hope for because something happens like in this case this woman just slipped out of the, off the planet she just took off her body and went away so now the whole pattern is disrupted but uh, because they, they don't know where we're going so don't um, don't settle for lesser fulfillments, it's an extremely subtle point that also means on the spiritual path, don't, don't be content because you're, you're pretty happy don't be content that you know you're living a good life, I live it Anand. I mean, the worst thing in the world is that you just become complacent where you are you just have to constantly be reinventing yourself. Swami gives us just a stunning example of that. I mean, he was in the C.C. He thought he'd pretty much finished his work. 2003, what does that make it, nine years ago? He was 77. And at the age of 77, he just picked up and started to work in India. I mean, he was, his health was so poor. I mean, and he'd accomplished so much by anybody's standard... Enough already. You know, you've done your part. You don't have to do any more. But why would you not do more? You know, it's it's like we have to just be really, really careful that we just think this is enough. But if if we're not, God realized it's not enough. So that's what Jesus was also saying. Be therefore perfect. Don't just be nice. And when someone was going to be his disciple and... That disciple said, Oh, but sir, my father died. Let me go conduct his funeral and then I'll come and be your disciple. And Jesus just scorned him. Let the dead bury the dead. Meaning like, it's not a duty for you. Your first duty is to love God. Don't be always just trying to keep your foot in all boats. You know, you really have to. My only duty is to love God. My first duty is to love God, to really commune with him. And don't stop. And, you know, at my age, I tell you definitely, you have to be constantly vigilant about it. Because it's very tempting to just kind of settle down. You get your little house, you get your relationships, you get your little routine, you get your little job, you have it all sort of worked out, and you just watch your consciousness just begin to sink. And when Swami created the Naya Swami order, um, he asked me, when the very day that he was announcing it in Assisi, he asked me, What do I think? And I said, I feel that you have rescued me, because, you've rescued me from ending my life in spiritual mediocrity. And his response was, Yes. Because I saw myself just like, What do I do now? I mean, I was trying to think how to become a kind of elegant older woman. I mean, I just couldn't figure out where to go with it. I just, I wanted to, but I didn't know where to go now that I was 60-something with these, these last years because the early years, there was all that youth to carry you and all that unusualness, but now having reached a certain level of competency, where do we go from here? And the Swami Vow just rescued me, took me right out of it, told me exactly where I was going to go. Oh, you'll be a sannyasi. I understand that. And you just have to... And also I remember when I was about 50. Let's see, would that have been? It was right after the SRF lawsuit ended. So it was about the year 2000. Yeah, so that was when I was around 50, a little more than in my early 50s. And we had been in that struggle for so long and there was so much that was ugly, especially at the end. We were sort of justified in feeling a little crabby you know, there was a kind of moroseness about a lot of things. It, life wasn't as much fun. Prior to that lifetime, life had just been a lark. Every minute had been a lark. And then the core of us kind of got control of the kingdom for a while, and they made our lives really tough, the evil ones. And, uh, but then the, the lawsuits all ended, and it was all over. And I waited for that um, childlike um, effervescence to return. I waited a year and a half. And then I realized it's never coming back because that was childhood innocence and innocence has been lost. And I also realized that if at this point I do not make a conscious, deliberate decision every day to be, you know, buoyantly happy, then I'll just get older and older from here. It's just the beginning of the end. And, you know, some people... I had very light karma, so I, I didn't have to make that decision until a lot later in my life. But uh, be, therefore, perfect. You, know, you have to constantly be attentive to it. You can't just think, this is good enough, I'll just let this happen, I'm justified. Every single day, you have to ask yourself, you know, let this be the first day of my experience of being a devotee of God. Let me be as excited as I was the first time I read Autobiography of a Yogi. In a different way, but deeply. Don't settle for lesser fulfillment, whether they're worldly or spiritual. Okay. That will do us for tonight.